Here's a really special deal on a great product from our friends over at Fresh Pressed Olive Oil Club. You can now receive a $39 bottle of artisanal fresh pressed oil free if you just pay $1 to help cover shipping. And there's nothing else you must buy now or ever. It's a wonderful opportunity because with olive oil, my number one rule is the fresher, the better. That's because the olive is a fruit and olive oil is actually a fruit juice. Like any other fruit juice, extra virgin olive oil is at its glorious peak of freshness, flavor, and nutritional potency when fresh squeezed. And that's what's missing with so many supermarket olive oils. After sitting on the shelf for months or even years, they've lost their freshness and can't compare with just pressed Evu shipped direct from the new harvest. Here at Milk Street, we really like these oils' vibrant, grassy flavors, as well as the intoxicating aroma, just like a garden in a bottle. Prove it yourself with no obligation to buy anything ever. For your free $39 bottle direct from an award-winning artisanal farm, go to getfresh177.com. That's getfresh177.com. One last time, getfresh177.com. Buying furniture is not easy. You want well-designed pieces that fit into a modern lifestyle, yet the look should be timeless. And you want a custom experience creating furniture designed specifically for your space. My suggestion is that you check out Cozy, a North American company that thoughtfully designs furniture for modern living. Their high-quality products are delivered quickly and are easy to assemble. Cozy also offers a great range of coffee tables, washable rugs, wall shelving, and credenzas. Their outdoor collection features high-quality modular sofas and sectionals made for outdoor living. You can visit their store in Toronto. Cozy now has expanded from an online market to their first in-person space, or go directly to their website at Cozy.com. That's C-O-Z-E-Y.com. Transform your living space today with Cozy. Visit Cozy.com to start customizing your furniture today. You know, I grew up with Vermont farmers who made do with tools they had on hand. A hammer, pliers, uh, and baling twine, of course, for most jobs. When I became a cook, however, I found that having just the right knife or maybe the perfect carbon steel skillet made all the difference. And the right tool also added pleasure to my cooking. I truly enjoyed my time prepping as well as cooking food. And that also goes for a car. The all-new Lexus GX has an exceptional capability that will have you seeing possibilities you never knew existed. Its advanced technology and luxurious interior mean that wherever you go, you'll never go without. And that includes available dynamic sky panorama glass roof, available front row massaging seats, available 33-inch all-terrain tires, and available multi-terrain select. Live up to the all-new Lexus GX, luxury beyond limits. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. You know, I like classic clothing that never goes out of style, and that's why I suggest you check out Quince, an online clothing store that focuses on timeless essentials at great prices. I recently bought a Mongolian cashmere sweater for under $100. It's a great sweater and a great deal. Now that warm weather is upon us, Quince has all the seasonal must-haves, like 100% European linen shirts from 30 bucks, performance polos, and versatile flow-knit activewear. The best part, all Quince items are priced 50 to 80% less than similar brands by partnering directly with top factories. And Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing practices, along with premium fabrics and finishes. 
Upgrade your wardrobe. Go to quince.com slash milkstreet for free shipping on your order and 365-day returns. That's Q-U-I-N-C-E dot com slash milkstreet to get free shipping and 365-day returns. Quince.com slash milkstreet. Hi, this is Christopher Kimball. Thanks for listening to Milk Street Radio. You can go to our website, 177milkstreet.com, to get our recipes, to stream our television show, or to get our latest cookbooks. Here's this week's show. This is Milk Street Radio from PRX. I'm your host, Christopher Kimball. I don't mind writing recipes that are the sorts of recipes that a lot of people sneer at. I just like using ingredients as I have them. That was journalist, cook, and TV celebrity Nigella Lawson. We sit down with Nigella and chat about philosophy, tray bakes, hash, and why you shouldn't bring any food if she invites you over to dinner. Before we get to Nigella, I chat with Pakistani journalist Saba Imtiaz about Zubida Tariq, a Pakistani TV star who was called Pakistan's Martha Stewart. Saba, how are you? I'm good. How are you? Good. Uh, Let's start talking about you. You grew up in Karachi in Pakistan. You speak five languages. You're a very well-known and well-published journalist and author. You're the author of the novel Karachi, You're Killing Me. So let's start with Karachi. You commented in the book that it's one of the most world's most dangerous cities. How big is Karachi? And just describe the city and what it's like to live there for us. Yeah, it's this very chaotic, very... I want to say doggy dog, but I think it's even sort of one step ahead of that. And it's uh, it can be a very brutal place, but it's also a really diverse, uh, possibly I think the, one of the most diverse cities in Pakistan and just a really fun and a bizarre, surreal kind of way place. So to just give us one example of one of the bizarre things that happen in Karachi on a daily basis. Well, other than the fact that, you know, people get mugged for their cell phones, but, you know, the mugger then stops to ask you to put your thumbprint in and uh, might even give you your phone back if he thinks it isn't up to snuff. <laughs> or, you know, the fact that on, on Eid, which is one of the big Muslim holidays, the, one of the Eids where you sacrifice animals as um, as part of a, a ritual, um, you know, animals will be stolen, kidnapped at gunpoint, shot dead if you don't pay up extortion. It's And so... You know, other sort of bizarre things, people are always looking to make a quick buck. So, you know, when the airport was attacked, for example, you know, in miserable times, people come together. But in Karachi, obviously, the airport restaurants started charging money so people could charge their phones. Because, you know, how else can we not make a quick buck when there is a great tragedy happening? (laughs) Okay, on on to a happier topic. So you wrote a piece about Pakistan's Martha Stewart. What's her name? Who is she? And... uh, and, and why do you give her that honorific Martha Stewart? So uh, Zubeda Tariq, who uh, passed away quite recently, actually a couple of months after I wrote this piece, was, you know, this legendary television cook. And she was 72 when she passed away and she had been on television for over two decades. And, um, you know, she came to TV at a time when there really wasn't much TV to watch at all. So there were just two channels in Pakistan at this point. And so if you only have two TV channels, you watch everything. And she was this very dignified, very proper character who, you know, came on television and taught you how to cook kind of elevated Pakistani dishes. And she became this kind of very familiar figure 
because she had this, while she was very dignified, she also had this very down-to-earth, slightly sarcastic, um, you know, homemaker attitude where she would give you advice on, you know, the basic kind of everyday problems that you don't know how to answer, like, how do I get the turmeric stains off my hands? Or, you know, my child won't eat X thing, or I don't know why my hair is falling out. And all these questions, I guess, especially in a pre-Google age where you didn't know how to answer and maybe your parents didn't live close by. So she became kind of this domestic guru, you know, who you turn to for answers and you turn to for recipes. And over the years, she became this person you turned to for everything. Well, some of the suggestions and questions were great. You know, how to strengthen your hair, eat vegetables, how to cure diaper rash, use corn flour, how to spur a child's growth, patience. Um, she also knew how to deal with lizards and turmeric stains. She was the grandmother or the mother you never had. Was it because there were changes in the culture she was popular? Yeah, I think, I mean, what happened, I think at the time that she became very popular is that people had started moving away from living with their families, right? So in traditional Pakistani culture, people tended to live in extended family setups. So you had several branches of the family living in one house. So if you needed advice, you know, let's say, how do you cure a diaper rash? You went to your grandmother who lived maybe on the first floor of the house. But as people started moving into cities and and their lifestyles changed and they no longer had that big circuit of family around them, then, you know, they needed to look somewhere for advice. So I think that she came off age at a time when people really did not have anyone else to turn to that easily. So you went to see the taping of one of her shows. Could you just describe the show? I mean, what was the format of the show? Yeah, so the format of her show, uh, she would come in, she had two recipes that she would normally cook, and she would literally get into it kind of right away. She always had a co-host with her. Um, also, the show used to air at a time people are starting to think about dinner, so, you know, around 5 p.m. And it was always very kind of everyday ingredients, things you would find in any Pakistani kitchen. And then she would just delve into into the cooking. And then sort of the, the last bit of her show was always questions. And so people would call in. And it was really fascinating to see she just had the information on pat, you know, she didn't have to think about it. She didn't have to look up anything. And one of my favorite calls on this thing was that somebody called her with a question that was related to breastfeeding. And it's such a personal thing. I guess it's the kind of thing that you would imagine as a as a woman, you would ask your doctor or maybe your mother or a close friend. But, you know, here was this woman calling in on a nationally broadcast television show. And she answered the question without ever using the word like breast or or milk, you know, she just answered the question in a way that I guess would pass any censor. So I thought that was really interesting, you know, how she'd become this confidant to people who felt, you know, sort of no, that there were no barriers to what they were going to ask her. Uh, let's just turn to you for a second. Uh, you were asked recently if there were any women journalists you looked up to and your answer was, quote, I don't like journalists specifically because of their gender. I like journalists because of their work. I resent the assumption that as a woman, I specifically look up to other women because men are never asked what male journalists they look up to. I thought that was a great answer. You want to just elaborate on that? Yeah, I just, you know, I find, um, especially when I started, when I wrote my book and, you know, the questions I would get asked after that was like, who were your favorite female authors and who were the women you looked up to? And it's not to say that I didn't look up to women. I think a couple of years ago, I realized that I actually had spent an entire year primarily just reading female authors, but not by design, just because I think that was the kind of work that I gravitated to. I also get asked a lot, like, what does your family think of what you do? Whereas I have read many, many interviews with male authors and journalists, and I do not recall ever hearing their opinions and what their mommy and daddy think of what they do. 
But that said, you know, I think the fact that there are, that there were women in journalism were a huge influence in many ways. I just don't think that I must only have female influences, you know. And so it's, uh, I find the question incredibly offensive on, on, on so many levels. Right. So, so finally, any last memory of her, any advice she gave you thought that really just sort of uh, sticks with you because it just summarizes who she was? Um, you know, I think one of the things that really, really stuck with me is the fact of how proud she was of working. As somebody who's 72, it's, I, I think I didn't expect that. You know, I've, I, I knew that she was quite traditional. I knew that she um, had certain views. But, you know, she, she insisted again and again that the reason she didn't feel burdened down or that she didn't feel pressurized or that, that she lived, she was at peace was the fact that she made her own money and that, you know, she was very proud of the fact that she was working at her age every single day. And that, I think, especially I know so many women who are over 50 who, in Pakistan particularly, who think their lives have, you know, finished. And so, you know, she she took such great pride in, in dressing up and, you know, wearing makeup and, and working that I thought it was such an incredible change from, from the women I'd seen around me. And I thought that was a really, really unexpectedly amazing thing for me. That was Saba Imtiaz, a journalist from Pakistan. You can subscribe and listen to Milk Street Radio anytime as a podcast. New shows are available every Friday on iTunes or wherever you get your podcast. Just subscribe and get all of our shows downloaded right to your phone. Right now, my co-host Sarah Moulton and I will take some of your calls. Sarah is, of course, the star of Sarah's Weeknight Meals on Public Television and author of the book Home Cooking 101. Sarah, are you ready to go? I am ready to take those questions. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling? This is Greg Colver. How can we help you? Well, I've got a bread starter-related question. I've been working on a like a country white sort of starter for a couple of years, and then I just started a sourdough starter maybe, I don't know, a month ago or so. And the sourdough starter is coming along nice. It has good density, the right ratio, and pretty solid. But for both of the starters, I'm storing them in my fridge because I only bake once a week or once every two weeks. And both of the starters, I get a lot of liquid that is coming to the top of the starter. And sometimes it's sort of discolored. And I guess my question is, you know, what do I do with that liquid? Should I mix it in? So when you feed your starter, are you taking some of the starter out to add more flour? Okay. So with this liquid on top, do you just mix it back in to bake bread? I have mixed it back in, and I've also poured it off um, (laughs) sort of inconsistently maybe. But generally, I would say I mix it in, and then I'll remove like four ounces of starter to bake with, and then I'll replace it with, you know, two ounces of water, two ounces of flour to replace it. And does that work? It seems to work pretty well. The country starter, you know, doesn't have a ton of yeast in it. It's not very strong. I end up putting more yeast in the actual bread when I bake it. The right. sourdough seems to be working fine, although it's not as tangy as I want it to be. There's no problem mixing the liquid back in, and there's nothing wrong with the liquid. Okay. If you just pour the liquid off, your start is going to be a little too thick probably, right? Okay. I would just mix it back in, and you're doing the right thing. You're replacing, you know, you're taking some out, replacing it seems about right. My problem with starters is like why I don't have pets. Yeah, you're they, right. They would die. You're right. Yeah. You have that, to take care of them or that plants. Pa- that parakeet would just you know, just yes. keel over. Yeah. 
I was going to say, do you have any thoughts on this? So the sourdough starter, I baked with it a few times, and I'm new to sourdough, and I'm not getting, like, all the flavor that I would expect out of it. Do you think that's a starter thing, or yes. is it just the time for rising? The problem with sourdoughs or any starter is it depends on, I mean, some of them have a lot of flavor, some of them don't. It just depends on the makeup. So yeah. did you buy a starter to start it? You actually did the old-fashioned method. I did the old-fashioned method. It caught I mean, the it, yeast it floating very around tangy. bacteria. And, and, and did you use potatoes or you use grapes or you just let it sit there, the water and flour, just to attract wild spores? Yep, wild just spores. water and flour. Yeah. yeah. Well, that's... Oh, that's sounds like a rock that, group. That's a, a righteous method. That's, <laughs> what, the wild spores? Yeah, the wild spores. It was fun. Sarah's just free associating at this point. Yeah, because I'm out of my league. It depends on what you attracted. You know, every starter is different. So it sounds like you haven't done anything wrong. And I'm, I'm impressed, by the way, that the wild yeast concept worked because sometimes that works and sometimes that doesn't. So. Yeah, and I tried it a couple of times. The first time I tried it, it did not work. And then the second time, I was just a little bit more patient. What I love is all these bread books that talks about doing that. But the thing they don't tell you is they bake bread all the time. So their kitchen's full. Of all these wild yeah, spores. Right. Well, they're not that wild. They're probably domesticated at this but, point. But, I mean, so they have no problem doing it. But yeah. if you're in a kitchen without that stuff running around, it's Like a my New York difficult. City kitchen never yeah. worked. Anyway, yeah. I don't... Yeah, my Philly kitchen's kind of that way. So. Yeah. I got nothing to add. I think you're doing everything right. And okay. Gonna, now I'm going to come you. to your house and have yeah. some fresh bread. Sounds great. Good for you, Sarah. Sarah. I got plenty of fresh bread coming out of my ears. So. <laughs> okay. Thank you. Okay, take care. It. Bye. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling? This is Teresa calling from Weston, Massachusetts. Oh, Weston, hello. Massachusetts. Yeah. Not far from Boston. How can we help no. you? Yeah, right there. Well, I have a challenge for you guys. I have a husband who is really intolerant of onions and garlic. And frankly, all the members of the Allium family, I think that includes leeks and shallots and chives. And it's really a bummer because what recipe just about doesn't have one of those ingredients? And so I give you the challenge of helping me out with even your own recipes from your Milk Street cookbook. Um, would you just leave out the onions and the garlic? I mean, it's such an important component. Or a substitute, or do you have any good ideas? There really is no substitute. Uh, I know. So what you have to do is punch up flavor Period. in other ways. Yeah. We've had a caller on the show who talked about onion and garlic powder and our comment was it's not the same, but if you get a high quality powder, it's actually not necessarily a bad thing to try. So I don't even think he can handle that. Well, that would be a question. Would be could yeah. he? Secondly, I would just open up the spices because spices are going to not be a replacement for, but they obviously add a lot of flavor. Coriander, cumin in particular, turmeric is very helpful. A bunch of things like that really add a lot of flavor. The third thing is. Sauces, the soy sauce, the oyster sauce, fish sauce. Umami. Umami, pomegranate molasses. Mm. Those are all common ingredients, and those also add flavors. The last thing is sautéing. If you're preparing vegetables, for example, as part of a dish, instead of using onion, use celery or carrot or fennel or something else and really brown it well to give you Mm -hmm. a lot of flavor. So those are the three things, spices, fermented sauces, and then make sure you brown as much as you can in a skillet um, to add flavor. One more question. You recently published the Cantonese beef stew. Uh-huh. I think it was with beef and onion. Would you even try to do what you just suggested with that recipe and substitute celery and carrots? and? Sure. And what you might do is 
You could use a little tomato paste, which you brown in the pan along with the vegetables to add some depth of flavor as well. Uh, And you also can add, you know, a little bit of soy or fish sauce, uh, particularly like fish sauce, which is not fishy if it's a good quality one. How much would you add in fish sauce? I just add a teaspoon or two. Oh, no kidding. Just to give some depth to the flavor with the other Mm -hmm. vegetables. But that's what I would do is use other vegetables, use a lot of heat and then use some underlying spices or fermented sauce to add flavor to it. Yeah, I mean, one of the things that onion contributes, and garlic too, is sugar. So it isn't just depth of flavor, it's Mm. sugar. That's why I I would be a fan in particular of two things that Chris said, which is tomato paste and carrots, both of which are also a source of umami. And when you cook them both, they develop more of that sweet flavor, and that will give you something that onions might have. It's different than onions, but it's similar. Okay. Those are all really excellent ideas. Thank you very much. But, but I, I would start with the onion and garlic powder from a high-quality source just to see. Yeah, I think I shall. If your husband doesn't have a problem with it, that would be a quick solution. That would be an amazing yeah. thing if we could discover that. All right. All right. Well, thanks. Thanks too much, guys. Okay. 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 Take, Take care. care. Bye. Bye. This is Milstead Radio. I'm Christopher Kimball. If you have a question or comment, the number is 855-426-9843. One more time. 855-426-9843. Or just send us an email at questions at MilkStreetRadio.com. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling? This is Carolyn. I'm from Warwick, Rhode Island. What is your question today? Well, my question today is about beating eggs, the whites and the yolks separately in a sponge cake. But every recipe that I read is different. My mom's recipe used the whole egg, and it was usually nine eggs, and I whipped it to death. She said, you have to whip it to almost the top of the bowl. So now my bowl is uh, altogether different, so my cakes come out very dry. So I've reverted to other recipes. Now here's some of the choices I get. Egg whites, beat till stiff, or beat till stiff but not dry, or beat till foamy, beat till glossy and stiff peaks, beat till soft peaks until they've <laughs> formed. Oh, my goodness, it just goes on. Well, I actually wrote a dessert cookbook once, so I've spent a lot of time on egg whites. Here's what you should do. Always add sugar to the egg whites as you beat them. Yeah, don't beat them without yeah. the sugar. The sugar, it's hygroscopic, which means it attracts moisture. It'll make it almost impossible to overbeat the whites. They'll be much softer and more billowy. Uh, without the sugar, you can overbeat them and they, they start to fall apart and the liquid comes out. For a sponge cake, which depends on the whites for lift, you want to beat them till they hold a two-inch peak. Okay. Other cakes you might slightly underbeat, but in this case, I would two-inch peaks, but not stiff peaks. That's overbeaten. So it just holds a two-inch peak. Just take the whisk out of the bowl, turn it upside down or right side up, depending how you look at it, and you should have a two-inch peak with the whites. But add the sugar to the whites. Okay. Or some of the sugar. I would say for every two whites, add a tablespoon of sugar, something like that. All right. Now, that's the whites. Now we go into the yolks. I had to beat them separately in another bowl. One says beat slightly until it's gradually fluffy. Another said beat yolks until frothy. Another one said beat yolks till pale and form a ribbon. Yes, that's the one. I agree with that one, too. Number three. Is it a thick ribbon, or does the ribbon, like, stay in a ribbon form and never leave its shape? You hold the whisk above the bowl with the egg 
sugar mixture in it, and it will fall slowly down, like the ribbon folding on itself as it goes down. Okay, all right. How are you folding the whites into the yolk mixture or the batter? I had to take some of the yellow and put it into the white. It's the reverse. You take a little bit of the white. What you do is you lighten the base. So the yolk mixture is the base. And if you added all of the whites to the base, you would lose the volume that you've accomplished because the base is so much denser than the whites. So what you do instead is just add a quarter of the whites and then just sort of stir it in. You use a larger whisk is good for that. Yes, and then gently fold in the rest of the whites. But that way you've lightened the base before you fold in the whites. Okay, I will do that. And and don't overfold. You should still see a few streaks of white in there because if you keep folding... You'll diminish the You'll uh, lose the total the volume. air in the whites. Yeah. Okay, I hope that this will work. I thank you very much. Well, let us know. Yeah, I mean, one do. way or the other. Yeah, success or failure. Let us know. Okay. Yes, I will. Okay. Thanks, right. Carol. Thanks. You're welcome. Bye bye now. You're listening to Milkshake Radio. I'm Christopher Kimball. Coming up next, my conversation with Nigella Lawson about her new book, At My Table. We'll be right back. I'm Christopher Kimball, and now here's a word from our friends at Allagash Brewing Company, who love food as much as we do here at Milk Street. Hi, this is Jason Perkins. I'm the brewmaster at Allagash, and I've been making Allagash White in Portland, Maine since 1999. So a white beer is a very old style of beer. Traditionally, it was brewed with spices of some type, typically coriander and orange peel. And I think one of the things that makes Allagash White distinctive and different is the rare combination of complexity and drinkability. And it's sometimes remarkable to stop and realize that I never get tired of it. You know, I'll open a can or I'll pour a glass and the first sip and I'm like, man, this beer is good. (laughs) There are a lot of different ways that folks can enjoy an Allagash White, and here are some of the examples of what folks here at the brewery like to do. My favorite thing to pair with an Allagash White is simple, beautiful seared scallops over a bed of fresh greens with blood orange and shaved fennel. My favorite would probably have to be like an Italian or a hoagie, capicola, pickled vegetables, crusty bread. It's got that nice lemony, zesty character that just gets you ready for the next bite. The ultimate pairing for me is this dish called bosom, which is this like big pork shoulder with like salt and brown sugar. We also call it candy pork in my house and a little like scallion ginger sauce. It's like lettuce, rice, pork, sip of white, lettuce, rice, pork, sip of white, and it's just perfection. My other top choice was like a hot dog. Like just have a hot dog and have an Allagash White. You don't need to dress it up. There's something about mussels with beer, especially the white, that is just so good. I feel like it goes really well with different soft cheeses that aren't too dominant, but then also with like spicy Indian food. So I think it's just really versatile. I could imagine like something like um like lemon meringue pie, that would be really nice. Pairing Allagash White with carrot cake is a thing of beauty. This maybe it sounds really boring, but 
pepperoni pizza. <laughs> I feel like after a long week having like a nice warm pepperoni pizza and a cold Allagash White is just like you made it, like you did your week. You deserve this pizza, you deserve this beer. It's perfect in summer, it's perfect in winter. I haven't really found a flavor that I don't think works really well with Allagash White. <laughs> Yeah, so not only do I drink it while I cook, I often cook with it. So if I'm creating some kind of stew, I'll add a little bit of Allagash White to it. A lot of people use Allagash White in like a fried fish batter. Anywhere where you can add like a spritz of lemon or a spritz of lime, that could be the beer. We are very food-minded here at Allagash, obviously. <laughs> and I think because of that, Allagash White is kind of subtle in a way that not all beers are, and I think that makes it very food-friendly. I think it tends to unlock qualities in the food that you otherwise wouldn't necessarily notice. Like it's not too hoppy or it's not too sweet, so it sits right in the middle and sort of brings the flavors of the dish to life. If you ask anyone here at Allagash, we're pretty much all stands for this beer. We love it so much because every time you have it, you pick up something new. Every time you come back to it, you're reminded like, oh, wow, yeah, that's really good. This is Jason Perkins again. Just want to say thanks to everyone at Allagash for sharing. You can try Allagash White at home, too. Head to Allagash.com slash locator to find Allagash White near you. For 21 plus only, please drink responsibly. Allagash Brewing Company, Portland, Maine. This is Mill Street Radio. I'm Christopher Kimball. British food writer, journalist, former deputy literary editor of the Sunday Times, and also television personality, Nigella Lawson, strikes the perfect balance between casual and clever. Her food ranges from a simple tray bake or iceberg lettuce salad to rice made with turmeric and cardamom. Her new book, At My Table, once again strikes the balance between fresh and comforting, but also with a dash of hard-earned philosophy on the menu as well. Nigella, how are you? I'm very, very well, and how are you? I'm great. Uh, it's been a while since we've spoken. Uh, I love your new book, by the way. Oh, well, thank you. I think in many ways it's it's got quite a bit in common with uh, your book. You know, I, I felt it was quite interesting. We both, we've come at it slightly different ways, but really we're talking a lot about the same thing and uh, really seeing home cooking as being dominated by flavor rather right. than uh, technique. I think you do an excellent job. I noticed that by incorporating other ingredients that were probably uncommon 20 years ago, but mm. doing it in a very comforting home style. <laughs> I know you hate that word home style, but a very comforting. I don't hate the word home style. I don't. Okay. In a home style way where uh, it, people don't feel like it's weird or it's yeah. foreign. You incorporate it nicely because you also have the puddings and you have the other things, the pork chops. And <laughs> so so the, there's a continuum from where you were, you know, as a cook 20 or 30 years ago to where you are now, which I like. So here's the question I'm not going to ask you. I, I loved your forward. <laughs> Uh, and it, I'm not going to ask you, hey, Nigella, what's the theme of your new book? <laughs> because that <laughs> drives you, you crazy. Then? Well, yeah. well, it doesn't drive me crazy. I just feel sometimes I don't always write to a theme or I can, the theme only becomes apparent, you know, afterwards. Well, if it's like asking George Eliot, what's the theme of Middlemarch or, 
you know, ask Hemingway about the sun also rising. Well, you, you flatter me, but I won't complain. Well, you started out in the newspaper business. You were quite a success at an mm-hmm. early age, so you are a writer. <laughs> um, and then and then I love another thing you said in the forward, uh, a quote by Kierkegaard. Life can only be understood backwards, but it must be lived yes. forwards. Like a recipe. <laughs> yes, that's true. And now <laughs> I think about it. So, okay, so let's get into some of the food. I, I like, one of the things I like is you talked about hash in a few recipes. Hash is something that has been around a long time. Uh, it's a great way to use leftovers. But people, it's sort of fallen out of favor, but I think you're bringing it back. Uh, so t- talk to us about hash. Well, I suppose what it is, is that I don't mind writing recipes that are the sorts of recipes that a lot of people sneer at, because of course, they're not actually recipes. So I have a uh, fried bread and tomato hash recipe, which is simply that, you know, it's a what rather than, you know, normally, I suppose you use potatoes, but that it's a fantastic way of using up stale bread and it reminds when I was young it was a sort of greasy spoon cafe special which was fried bread which we call fried slice in the vernacular with tinned tomatoes which I don't particularly recommend but I quite like the idea of making this anew and I suppose that if you called them croutons with tomatoes, people would mind them less. But I, I, I just like using ingredients as I have them. And I think that in a way, often a book isn't there simply to write recipes that, you know, in a way you could then engrave on stone. They're to give ideas. A lot of recipes are really ideas, but you give amounts because you're giving an account of what you did and you're giving an idea of how much you need to feed how many people. But really, that's that's an idea rather than a recipe, but a good one. So, should you and I be put out to pasture at this point because we're so we, we come from a place that doesn't exist anymore? Or do you think this is such an annoying question? Do you think the average 25 year old views food the way you do or I do? Or is it a totally different approach? I actually find that that generation, 24 to 28, they cook a lot. At least, I, I mean, all I will say is that the ones I come across seem to cook quite a bit. And what makes me happy as well is seeing how many of them have got confident enough to cook without recipes. Right. And it's such an odd thing to say because you and I write recipes and yet we know that the way of feeling comfortable around cooking is that when you can dispense with the recipe, when you've somehow internalized a lot of it and then just go by your own palate. I've, you know, in a sense, I'm not sure we're ready to be put out to pasture, but I certainly think that, you know, in a way, if I do my job well enough, I should make myself redundant. Well, it depends on the pasture, I suppose, right? I mean, they're pastures <laughs> and they're quite... pastures, you know. <laughs> yes, I mean, but I think I think that I don't know. I mean, I think that that people need to feed themselves, and they continue to do so. I mean, I I love new flavors. I love trying out new recipes and new ingredients. But I. I can so easily get into a rut myself and I don't mind it because I quite like repeating things, but every now and then I have to push myself along. So I'm not particularly judgmental about the way people cook. I just, I'm pleased that they continue to do so and I think there is a lot of interest. You know, it's interesting you mentioned rut because I think you and I share the same point of view. I mean, for 10,000 years of human civilization, cooking wasn't a rut because you had a fairly limited 
palette of ingredients and recipes. And so, but people found that rut to be immensely enjoyable in what really is really the fabric of their life. So if you wake up in the Middle East and have hummus for breakfast with, a, you know, with some raw onion, uh, that's mm. what you eat every morning before you drive your taxi or go to work, whatever yes. you do. And, and that's yeah. not a rut. That's incredibly satisfying. So, yeah, you can overdo it, but consistency it's uh, a balance. Yeah. There's a balance. Right. Yeah, it's a balance. And I, I think the world is changing everywhere. I mean, I can I can speak more about Italy because I used to live in Italy and I still read quite a lot of, uh, you know, recipes in Italian and uh, Italian food magazines. And it would be inconceivable that they were to have so many non-traditional Italian recipes, you know, 20 years ago. But the internet does create a different sort of globalization. And... Whereas still in Italy, they will sneer at the way the next village makes their meat sauce. Nevertheless, they're very interested in trying out recipes from further afield. Um, okay, uh, what's a tray bake? Oh, a tray bake, I don't even know if it is. I call it a tray bake. A tray bake is when you really put many things into the oven and cook them all at once in a layer, no, as a roast, really, or a, it's baked or roasted. It depends how you say it. And for me, this nearly always involves chicken thighs. Um, I've always got one such going on. I've got two in my new book. And um, I, well, I love chicken thighs. And I... I'm not a very good carver, and I like the idea of throwing everything into one dish, letting it cook very happily by itself, and then just putting it on the table as it is. To me, that makes life just um, rhapsodically easy. So you, you had a great recipe where you said buy a chicken breast with the skin on and then fry the chicken breast, saute it separately, and then uh, crackle it up, uh, let it cool, and add it to the iceberg lettuce as part of the dish. So the two things I yes. loved about that was the use of the skin. I thought that was really interesting. And two, you really don't like salad snobs. So you're perfectly happy with iceberg lettuce, which I applaud. Very uh, happy. I can't stand any sort of snobbery in, in of any sort. And I just sort of, it's something that I find odd. Because an iceberg lettuce, especially when it's got, you know, the, the, the crisp uh, chicken skin is divine and there are certain times when it is the right lettuce and I adore all sorts of leaves I mean you know I'm I can hardly be prized away from some radicchio or other bitter leaf but nevertheless it doesn't mean to say I don't have time for iceberg as well. You, you talk a little bit about chaos in the kitchen and, and it seems I'm reading between the lines you on one hand you think that it's really impossible to enjoy cooking be creative unless you have some order in the kitchen I totally agree on the other hand you don't like too many rules in the kitchen how do you sort of mm. take those two concepts and put them together well I think that that's really about experience isn't it because until your experience you need to have more rules and then when you've somehow grown to understand um, how certain ingredients behave under certain conditions and what heat does and what mistakes can be remedied and what mistakes can't. So once you've got that sort of experience, you can let things run as they may a bit. You can introduce more chaos. But in, in, anyway, when you cook, there's always an element of chaos because there's no such thing as complete and absolute order. 
ingredients will behave as they do. And some days, a, you know, a tomato may be more watery than another day. And every small change in an ingredient will have an effect, a different, uh, in the same way as you know that on colder days, your pan will be colder before you even put the ingredients in. And that will make a difference. And so I think that whether, however you want to plan it, there is always a ribbon of chaos running through anything you do in life, let alone cooking. But at least with cooking, you can impose a certain amount of order. Um, what's next? I mean, you uh, and I have been doing, each of us have you know, had a career for a long time. We've been pretty consistent in what 20 we years do. I've been doing this. It's my yeah. second career. So is this something that continues forever do you see at some point know. the world's going to change? You and I just have no idea what's coming, which is probably the right answer. Oh, I don't know about the world. I mean, whether the world even continues is, you know, a moot <laughs> point. But, um, but what I, but I feel that. I didn't plan ever to become a food writer. It slightly took me by surprise. So in the same way as I feel I have no idea what I might do next. So, I mean, I'm enjoying myself, so it's difficult to change. But sometimes you just get sort of sidetracked and then that little detour becomes the main path. And in a way, it's a good thing in life that one doesn't ever quite know what will loom for good or ill. I often think about, you know, what time in history I'd, I would really prefer if there is a time to, be, to have been alive. Oh, I'm longing to know when you want to be alive most. Well, I, I think there are times in cultures, it's the bell curve, right? There, there are points when everything kind of fires in all cylinders and then you sort of go down mm. the slippery slope on the other side. But I, I, I wonder, is there a time, let's say, in British culture when you think you would have been happiest or would it be today? I think as a woman, you just can't really volunteer for the past. That's absolutely true. Yeah. <laughs> That's a short answer and an accurate answer. Um, you really put me in my place right there. <laughs> I didn't mean to. What? There's no comeback to that. I can't say anything. <laughs> yeah, but there doesn't have to be. This isn't, we're not, we're not fencing, we're talking. <laughs> it's absolutely true. <laughs> Nigella, thank you so much. Thank you. That was best-selling author and TV personality Nigella Lawson. Her new book is At My Table. You know, I suspect that Nigella doesn't suffer fools gladly. Anyone who quotes Kierkegaard and who was the deputy literary editor for the Sunday Times in London in her 20s is no skin-deep celebrity. Nigella once told me that if one lives long enough, one inevitably experiences disappointment. Or, as writer Quentin Crisp pointed out, the British do not expect happiness— they just want to be right. Right now, I'm heading to the kitchen at Milk Street to chat with Lynn Clark about this week's recipe. Lynn, how are you? I'm great, Chris. As you know, while you were sitting here in Boston, I was in Madrid <laughs> a few months ago, Thanks. and I went to, there's a little park, and there's a restaurant complex in the park called Florida Retiro, run by a guy called Joaquin Felipe. Cool guy, you know, sort of a new wave chef in Spain, big, you know, sideburns. And they have this variety show at night where they have jugglers and magic tricks and everything else. And they have a restaurant, a few restaurants there. And um, so this is new age cooking, right? So why did I go there? Not being a new age kind of guy. Well, we decided to make a Spanish ratatouille called pisto. It's just a bunch of vegetables, essentially sautéed and cooked together. You know, eggplant, peppers, etc. You know, it's a classic dish that's made in a lot of places around the world. His version was nice and clean. It was very simple and some nice technique there. So we thought we'd bring back the Spanish ratatouille pisto to Milk Street and see if we could make it for a home cook. 
and that was your job. That's right. So like you said, it's like a ratatouille. So that's vegetables simmered in a tomato sauce. You can do this as a side dish or make it a main dish by adding a fried egg or a poached egg on top of it. For our version here, we used eggplant, zucchini, onions, bell peppers, and tomatoes. So you really want to cook these vegetables separately because we're trying to maintain their texture and their flavor. This is all about the vegetables. So you really want to be able to taste each of these vegetables. So we're going to cook the eggplant first, take it out, then cook the zucchini, take that out, and then continue on with the rest of the vegetables. And so this is all cooked in a, I guess, tomato sauce. But what's in the sauce? It's really simple, really quick sauce. Takes maybe less than 15 minutes to put together. We saute some onions, add some bell pepper, red bell pepper, yellow bell pepper, that's your choice. A can of diced tomatoes. That all gets simmered together with some garlic, some cumin, some oregano. And then we add those original vegetables back in. So the zucchini and the eggplant get added back in. They just get warmed through. We don't want to meld the flavors too much there. We really want to be able to taste those vegetables. Every vegetable needs to be its own person. That's right. You're you're very democratic of you. So finally, this is pisto manchego, right? So there's a little cheese on this. That's right. So there's different pistos. You can do pisto huevo. That's pisto with an egg. This is pisto manchego. Manchego cheese is a sheep's milk cheese. So that has some grassy notes to it, which we really like with the vegetables here. It's also really buttery, so adds some richness. Lynn, thank you very much. This is a Spanish ratatouille pisto manchego. Cook some of the vegetables separately finish with a little bit of cheese, and you could, if you want for dinner, throw an egg on it. Thank you, Lynn. You're welcome. You can find this recipe at 177milkstreet.com. I'm Christopher Kimball. You're listening to Milk Street Radio. Coming up, more of your culinary questions with my co-host, Sarah Moulton. We'll be right back. You know, I grew up with Vermont farmers who made do with tools they had on hand. A hammer, pliers, uh, and baling twine, of course, for most jobs. When I became a cook, however, I found that having just the right knife or maybe the perfect carbon steel skillet made all the difference. And the right tool also added pleasure to my cooking. I truly enjoyed my time prepping as well as cooking food. And that also goes for a car. The all-new Lexus GX has an exceptional capability that will have you seeing possibilities you never knew existed. Its advanced technology and luxurious interior mean that wherever you go, you'll never go without. And that includes available dynamic sky panorama glass roof, available front row massaging seats, available 33-inch all-terrain tires, and available multi-terrain select. Live up to the all-new Lexus GX, luxury beyond limits. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. 
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. This is Most Jet Radio. I'm Christopher Kimball. Right now, it's time to take a few more calls with my co-host, Sarah Moulton. Sarah, are you ready? Yes, you bet. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's on the line? Hi, I'm Barb Schneider from Minneapolis, Minnesota. Hi, Barb. How are you? Great. How are you? Very good. So I absolutely love the Tuesday night dinners in the magazine. Love them, love them. I recently came across a very interesting problem. I was making a dish and cutting up serrano peppers and finished and forgot to take my contact lenses out. Ooh. Yeah, it was bad. It's bad. I about died. So I'm wondering if there's a trick to cutting them for the days you forget your contact lenses, or is there a way to get those oils off your hands? Well, you need to buy, as I broke down did a year ago, a little box of disposable Those gloves. little surgical gloves. I have a one-year-old, actually, and so I can't pick him up if my hands are full of Serrano oils. And that solves the problem. I, I've touched my eyes many times after cutting chilies and had disastrous effects. The only way you could do it, people say, is hold it by the stem, you know, mm-hmm. and then use the knife in the other hand. I think that's absurd. It just doesn't really work. Yeah. So disposable gloves either. is really the, it's only the way to go. Choice. I mean, I've tried other things like trying to do it inside a plastic bag or I've done a lot of dumb stuff with chili peppers, but it's, <laughs> the, it's the gloves. You know, yeah. you buy a little box for a few bucks. Yeah. But get the right size. So, for example, I have little hands because I'm short. Mm-hmm. And if you get, you know, the big ones and you have little hands, then you've got no dexterity. Yeah, they do. Right. So I agree with Chris. Well, and I Googled it and it said something about mixing olive oil and I forget what all to do, but that did absolutely nothing. Yeah. No, I don't think. No, it doesn't This make is any like sense. putting tomato juice on your dog who got sprayed by a skunk. <laughs> oh, that doesn't work? No, I went through a lot of tomato juice. <laughs> didn't. I just had a red dog. Yeah. It didn't really help. Okay. So. Just keep the darn dog away. It's the gloves. Well, yeah. you know, now you mentioned that because under the sink we have a box and they're very small. And so I always have a hard time putting right. them on. No, no. I thought they were always one size fits all. Not at all. Mm-mm. Thank there, you. There you go. Okay. All right. All right. There well, you go. Loves it is. Okay. okay thanks, Barb. Thanks for calling. All right. Thank Take you care. so much. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Welcome to Milk Street. Who do we have on the line? Uh, this is Sarah calling from Ann Arbor. Oh, I love Ann Arbor. I went to college yeah, there. I do too. So how can we help you today? I have fallen in love with the toasted rye flour cookies from Milk Street. I probably make them once every two weeks. Um, But my question was, I love the idea of the toasted flour. And so now I'm wondering, is there any other application in which 
I can use that, especially in regards to baking. Sure. Um, It's a little bit like white bread versus toast, right? I mean, white bread has no flavor to speak of. Right. And you toast it, it has flavor. I think the problem is all-purpose flour, you know, I've come to realize has no flavor, right? And that's why this chocolate chip cookie has some rye flour in it. I think you enhance whole wheat or rye or other more whole grain flours, probably get more flavor by toasting. But you could certainly Mm -hmm. toast all-purpose flour as well. I would say it depends on the result. In this chocolate chip cookie, we wanted to create more flavor because chocolate chip cookies tend to just be sweet and chocolatey. Uh, But there are other cases like a white cake, for example. You probably don't want that additional flavor. So it would depend on whether you want a very clean flavor or something other than the flour is going to do most of the heavy lifting or if you want that flour flavor to come through a little bit more. So it would depend. It's like toasting nuts in a recipe, same thing. You know what's interesting? I've never done the toasted flour business for baking, but I just remembered at cooking school, they told us to make, you know, a brown roux. One of the ways to shorten the process, I don't know if it thickens or doesn't thicken the same way, because the thing about the longer you cook roux, the less it thickens. And you know you need a brown roux for a gumbo or any of those New Orleans dishes. But they said you could actually toast the flour to shortcut the whole process. Oh, before? Yes. You add the oil or the butter? So the answer is anytime you want to establish more flavor, yes. But there's certain recipes where you just don't want more flavor. You want something else in the dish to really be the predominant flavor. But you could toast all-purpose flour anytime, sure. Yeah, so I was just wondering, like, would it affect, you know, the rise on a cake or bread or something, having toasted that flour, you know, would it change the structure in any way? Excellent question. Don't, don't know, know the don't answer. think so, and yeah. <laughs> I don't know the answer. To be determined, I don't know. The okay. other problem is if you had two or three cups of flour, you probably aren't going to want to be... Well, you'd have to have a big skillet to do that anyway. I think it's a particular case, like with a cookie, where you want to enhance flavor where the basic cookie doesn't have much flavor. Mm-hmm. The problem with chocolate chip cookies, I always felt, was it didn't have a lot of flavor other than sugar and chocolate. I know, but what's wrong with that? There's nothing wrong with that, <laughs> except these are better. Did I really say that? No? <laughs> I, now we're going to get I, hate mail. I agree, because I don't like cloyingly sweet No, cookies. I don't yeah. either. So this, I thought was a nice way of breaking that up. Yeah. So. So. yeah. I think for a basic cake, I probably would not do it. But certainly okay. for cookies and that sort of thing, it works great. So Okay. All okay. Right. All right. Well, Thanks, Sarah. go Zingerman's and go Blue. <laughs> Thank you. Okay. Nice to talk to you. All right. Bye-bye. Bye. This is Milk Street Radio. I'm Christopher Kimball. Right now it's time for this week's Milk Street Basic. Most any cuisine that eats yogurt makes a quick dipping sauce used to dress vegetables, smear on bread, used on salads, or slather on meat. Our new favorite version comes from Somalia and is called Bisbas. The cool dairy base is shot through with serrano chilies, garlic, and handfuls of cilantro. Here's the recipe. In a blender or food processor, puree a half cup each Greek yogurt and cilantro, a quarter cup rice vinegar, one seeded serrano chili, a garlic clove, and salt to taste. You can find this recipe at MilkStreetRadio.com. Now it's time for Dr. Aaron Carroll. He's a professor of pediatrics at Indiana University School of Medicine. He's also a frequent contributor to the New York Times Upshot column. Dr. Aaron Carroll, how are you? I'm good. How are you? How are you going to uh, turn over my world today? Well, I thought we might talk about the recent news about how California now wants everyone to put stickers on cups of coffee saying it's going to cause cancer. What? I missed this. I must have been hiding somewhere. Oh my gosh, I feel like this is all I've been seeing on the news. 
there was a law case, a, a law firm sued a bunch of companies saying that, that according to California law, specifically Proposition 65, if a business with more than 10 employees sells a product that contains one of 65 chemicals that the state has ruled is carcinogenic, they have to put a warning on it. And because coffee has a crimalide in it, they, they won this case. And now, just like cigarettes must come with warnings that saying smoking can cause cancer, now coffee being sold in stores in California has to come theoretically with a sticker that would warn them it contains a chemical that can cause cancer. Wait, wait, wait. You, you told me within the last couple of months that coffee in the studies actually is probably good for you, right? I know. And this is why this was enraging uh, in the first part, but but something that really, California's not doing a really good thing here. Um, so, so what they're doing again is they're saying that coffee contains acrylamide, which is a chemical that gets made when coffee is roasted. But here's the thing. Basically, when you cook a lot of starchy foods at temperatures above 250 degrees, and by doing that, by frying, by baking, by broiling, by roasting, you make acrylamide. So this is not something that's added to food. It's something that, that appears in all food that we make, even if you make it at home. That's insane. Yes. And so because there's been some laboratory research that, that shows that if you, of course, give rats enormous quantities of acrylamide, that they could theoretically develop cancer, it has made the list of different substances, even, even from the WHO, that could be possibly carcinogenic to humans. But again, we have to remember a couple things. One... The WHO, or more specifically the IARC, has looked at something like 900 to 1,000 different chemicals and found basically all of them but two cause cancer. The irony here is that coffee is one of the two. And because, you know, up until a couple of years ago, I think it was 2016, coffee had actually made the list of the WHO could possibly cause cancer. But due to a lot of improved research, in fact, some of the things we've talked about on this show, they recognized that coffee really doesn't have much evidence behind it. So they removed coffee from the list of things that cause cancer. But because it contains this chemical, California now has to carry warning labels that says coffee could cause cancer. And, you know, we can make, we can make jokes about this, but uh, if we warn that everything causes cancer, then people will start to ignore the signals. Two-thirds of people who smoke are likely to die early because of a smoking-related illness. That's an enormous danger that is quantifiably large, and it is therefore justifiable that we warn people, especially since cigarettes are addictive, that if they smoke, they could be in real danger. The magnitude of the potential cancer-causingness of coffee is unbelievably small if it exists at all. So just because a potential link might exist does not mean it should carry the same kind of warning. And this is going to unfortunately make a lot of people scared of something where the evidence just isn't there. And as we've talked about before, coffee's arguably good for you. And so now we're scaring people away from something which is absolutely not harmful uh, and might even be possibly beneficial. And of course, it raises your quality of life, and we should never ignore that. But, okay, but aren't there lots of products sold in every supermarket or corner store that are full of all sorts of chemicals that don't say, warning, this candy bar may give you cancer? Ah, but this is where we're headed in, in states like California, where if, if this same law firm or others like them start to bring these kinds of lawsuits against other companies, then they might have to carry those warning signals at all. And as I said to you, a criminalite appears in lots of things that we cook. It's just for some reason they've decided to attack coffee first. Now, some cynics will say that's because they are looking for a quick payday or perhaps a settlement or, or a right. way out of this. But this kind of law leaves a lot 
of gray area where, yes, almost everything could eventually be labeled as causing cancer. I think we should sit down with every two-year-old and sit them down and say, life causes death. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, like, there's, a great, there's a great quote in an article I read where somebody said, well, since living cells are, are much more likely if, to get cancer than dead cells, right. exactly what you're saying, life causes cancer. That's what we're getting. I mean, the sun causes cancer. That doesn't mean that we should never go outside. It means that we need to be reasonable about what we're doing. There's really almost no evidence that, that the acrylamide in coffee or in anything else that we're eating is near the quantities that will be dangerous. And continuing to make us always afraid of food is not doing anyone any good. Well, it seems on one hand, you know, you look at the USDA and FDA, et cetera, you, you could argue that they, they let big agriculture does things we don't like. On the other hand, you have the opposite effect, which is the slightest tinge of, of a chemical that occurs naturally yep. when you heat carbohydrates over 250 degrees. Yeah. Uh, we have to put a warning label on, on your, your Dunkin' Donuts. Is, is there no middle ground in this country well, anymore? That, that's yeah. the thing. Is I would actually call the middle ground even further away. Like, I mean, there are some substances that even processed food companies add to the food that they are selling, which arguably is not necessary, maybe is potentially dangerous in huge amounts, but all of the evidence shows us that's safe. And people right or wrong, we'll pick it against that. But in this case, we're arguing about something that occurs naturally when we cook. And just because it's being cooked in a coffee roaster versus I'm roasting the coffee at home doesn't mean that it needs a warning label. At, at some point, we're going too far in what we're worrying about is inside the food we're eating. I have never heard you this exercise. You, you're going to, no. you need to take a coffee. vacation, man, because that, this I is really. I was waiting to get back from vacation just to talk about this. <laughs> Dr. Aaron Carroll, that's the latest update on warning labels on cups of coffee. Thank you. Thank you. That was Dr. Aaron Carroll, professor of pediatrics at Indiana University School of Medicine, also a frequent contributor to the New York Times Upshot column. Dr. Aaron Carroll likes to punch conventional wisdom in the face, or put another way, he likes to simply look at the facts. It turns out that the latest scare, coffee and cancer, is yet another example of cherry-picking medical studies. It would seem that the facts don't matter when it comes to the truth about wine, coffee, sugar, fat, margarine, and many other ingredients. So instead of pinballing from one scare to the other, maybe we should sit back and take the time to simply enjoy our food. And that's not going to kill you. That's it for this week's show. If you tuned in too late, you can listen to our podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, TuneIn, Google Play, or Spotify. Please remember to subscribe to the show. You'll automatically get every single show downloaded to your phone or tablet each week. If you want to learn more about Milk Street, please head to 177milkstreet.com. You can download each week's recipe, subscribe to our magazine, watch our TV show, or order our new cookbook. We'll be back next week, and thanks for listening. Christopher Kimball's Milk Street Radio is produced by Milk Street in association with WGBH. Executive producer, Melissa Baldino. Producer, Tristan Cimini. Associate producer, Carly Helmetog. Production assistant, Jackie Nowak. Senior audio engineer, Douglas Sugar. Senior audio editor, Melissa Allison, with help from Vicki Merrick and Sydney Lewis. Audio mixing by Jay Allison at Atlantic Public Media. Production help, Debbie Paddock. Theme music by Tubob Crew. Additional music by George Brandel Egloff. Christopher Kimball's Milk Street Radio is distributed by the Public Radio Exchange. Thank you.